Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how are you, sir? Great. I'm so excited to be talking with you again. It feels like it's been a while. Yeah, it does feel like it's been a while. Has it? Has it only? It's it's only been a week. Yeah, right? it's only been a, it's week, only been a week. But like, I've just I don't know how time went by, and we've got I've got a lot to say, and I haven't organized everything, so I don't know how this is going to go. This is going to be really weird. I'm not going to cover everything. It's just so much. Yeah, like we're skipping over a lot uh, again in the. Uh, in our study of the Hebrew Bible. And, you know, we've anticipated this. We more or less knew that with a text as large as the Hebrew Bible, we probably could not get to everything. Um, unlike the Doctrine and Covenants and the uh, Book of Mormon, where we just covered large uh, swaths mm. of scripture when we needed to, in this case of the Hebrew Bible, we're just straight up skipping yeah. over several chapters at a time. And, uh, of course, for somebody like Derek, a bona fide spiritual and, or sorry, biblical scholar, that is just not going to do. That is just right. not going to be okay. You know, and uh, let's put this in yeah, perspective. We spent nearly three months. It was two months and I think three weeks on Genesis, including the parallels in Abraham and Moses. But we spent nearly three months on Genesis, and now we get... Just half a week on Leviticus because it's shared with six chapters of Exodus. Mm -hmm. And then so we have basically one week on Leviticus, one week on Numbers, and one week on Deuteronomy. That is icky. I mean, I get that that but here I wanna I wanna talk, I could probably talk a week on each chapter of these <laughs> texts. Like I'm sure the Torah, the first five books of the Bible are foundational for a lot of things. And I think reading through, it's just, I don't know how, I, I, I'm i just so overwhelmed by how much I have to cover. And I'm going to be covering stuff from the non-assigned chapters in Leviticus. I can't cover everything, but uh, there's, and and there are, uh, and we'll maybe get to Leviticus and, and talk about that. But oh, I, I should ask you. What do you mean, maybe get to Leviticus? No, we but are I mean, getting to Leviticus. I <laughs> I mean, when that am I going to do like to talk about today? <laughs> like, when am I going to do my intro to Leviticus? Should I do it now or should I do it after we do these six Exodus chapters? That's what I meant. Oh yeah, let's do it after. The, yeah, let's uh, do it after Exodus chapters. But I should that ask. The, I should. Uh, I should ask you. Um, do you know what a math teacher's favorite book of the Bible is? I guess it's Numbers. It's Numbers. Yeah, saw that one. Yay! Coming. Okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> see, I'm not as see like I'm not mad at Derek so much when he goes over his jokes. I'm just mad at myself for not seeing them coming. Oh, see, like, that's why moment, I have to I have to escalate and and try new things. Yes, and I'll say it again: <laughs> if you're new, to, in case you're new to the show, like Derek probably spends more time planning his jokes than he does on the actual content. I of do. The show I I, I <laughs> literally do because that's why I don't have all my notes together on this. Is I. I I was trying to think of of jokes and research and then I I just couldn't find any. But anyway. Also Derek was spending a lot of time trying to figure out which parts of the missing text we were going to cover today. There's a lot of missing text in uh these particular chapters and uh just trying to figure out what missing stuff we have to cover before we get to the actual come follow me lesson right. was probably a task and a half for a biblical scholar like Derek. Right. But, and, uh, and so I'm anxious to see. I want to remind everyone that um, that J Jesus 
saved James from sin, death, and hell, but he didn't save James from my jokes. <laughs> no, he did not. He was like, you on your own for that. Yeah. Like, Derek's jokes are beyond Jesus. Yes. Like, Jesus yes. is like, I don't, I'm not Something the that. atonement can't fix. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway. So, uh. Yeah, let's go ahead and get into it. Well, I do want to give uh, people a preview. I'm so excited about next week as well, because next week we're covering some chapters of Numbers, but not all of them. But Uh there's two things that I want uh, people to really be eager for. One is the uh, story of Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. It's a makeup holiday for those that missed out on the first Passover. And then the Daughters of Zilophahad narrative, where these women have initiative to go to Moses and say, hey, look. Why should we be left out? Why should our father's name be left out? Because we had no brothers and it's and then um, their right to inherit is because they stood up for themselves and asked of God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, we get the important text that would would to God that all God's people be or would that would that all God's people be prophets is how it goes, I think. And so, yeah, we're all supposed to be prophets. That's how it's supposed to be. Anyway, let's jump into Exodus. And we've been, um, this is the culmination and climax of the the coming out of Egypt narrative. And now we are getting the instructions. We're not in the promised land yet, but we're getting in the instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And eventually this will get transferred into how to build the temple. And... Uh, one of the lessons we learned, so we had earlier in chapters 25 through 31 of Exodus, which I don't think we covered in the uh, in the Come Follow Me, but that is the plans for the tabernacle, very detailed plans. And one of the lessons that we learned from the repetition of much of that material here in Exodus 35 through 40 is how exactly the Israelites followed the instructions of the Lord found earlier in chapters 25 through 31. Some of it is repeated verbatim. It's very explicit. And it's, uh, I think, three times in Exodus 39, it said, and the children of Israel did exactly as the Lord commanded. And this is in sharp narrative contrast to the incident of the golden calf, which we just had, just had Mm -hmm. in uh, Exodus uh, a few chapters earlier in Exodus. And uh, in this narrative um, of the golden calf, it's where the people of Israel failed to hold their priesthood leader Aaron accountable. And instead of sustaining Aaron correctly, um, the way Jethro sustained Moses and said, hey, what you're doing is wrong, uh, and taking on that burden of of helping Aaron do the right, uh, helping Moses do the right thing. Here, instead of taking on the burden of helping Aaron make sure he does the right thing, they just ratified his wickedness and they were punished for it. So, just I'm warning everyone out there: uh, when a prophet says something, that's not the final word. That's the beginning of the conversation. People need to do the work of spiritually confirming it comparing it with the scriptures, comparing it with what the Holy Ghost uh, is leading us into all truth, right? That's Moroni's promise. And Mm -hmm. as a whole, we will keep each other accountable. There will be checks and balances. This is not a cult. This is not a dictatorship. This is not a tyranny. This is not the church of the brethren. This is the church of Jesus Christ who lowered himself below all things. We are not um, a top-down church. We are a... Jesus is the bottom church, and all of us are 
uh, relying on his work and service. And um, that's our example. Anyway, I'm I'm getting off topic based. I'm like going off of my notes right now. So let's go back to another thing that we see in. I'm not going to go through the details of these, but if you read through these chapters. From one lens, it could be boring because it's going through all these details, but on another sense, it could be exciting. It could be enriching to read through these details. And here's why. It's because many of these Israelites put their own stamp of excellence on the finished product. And the text emphasizes that they offered their skill with arts and crafts as an offering to the Lord. We absolutely can bring our full authentic selves to the Lord. Uh, see Exodus 35, 10 through 19. Go ahead and read that. I'm not going to read that. Uh, and again, the theme here is the willingness of the people. One good reading strategy here is to imagine yourself at this event and savor the joy of let's get this right. These Israelites are trying to get it right here. They're um, holding one another accountable to what the Lord has said. And with that attitude, you know they would have held the leaders accountable for following the express instruction of the Lord. They learned from the golden calf, like, whoops, we better we better make sure we're doing it right or else we're going to have problems. So then in Exodus 37, we have some of the ritual furniture of the tabernacle, and later this gets used in the temple as well, created as the work of the people. The Ark of the Covenant with its cherubim and mercy seat represents God's covenantal love, God's loyal mercy and grace, and the favor that God has promised to God's people. The table for the bread of the presence, also called the showbread, that represents God's continual companionship among us. The golden lampstand represents the continuous illumination that comes from God. The altar of incense represents the place where prayers are are offered and rise up to God. And all of these things, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the table for the showbread, the lampstand, and this incense altar, they're all golden. This majestic, beautiful, golden amazement, amazingness. Now, here's one thing I want to avoid. Let's avoid the temptation to play gotcha with the text and say, look, we have temples too. We have sacred clothing too. Like I didn't go over the the sacred priesthood clothing that the high priest wears. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really want to focus on, on those details. I don't have time. Uh, and also other resources are probably going to go into that. But what we should do not do is say, look, we've got temples. We've got this sacred clothing. We've got all this other stuff. See how everything perfectly matches up with with us, what we do in our temples today. And let's not do that. To do so would distort the independent integrity of both ancient temples and modern temples. They're different, right? It's a different dispensation. Uh, We're line upon line in different places. We are, um, they just technologically don't work the same way. We don't do animal sacrifices, right? Right. Uh, And it would also uh, deny that God speaks to people according to their time and place if you tried to just uh, use this in an apologetic way. And it would also do some disrespect to our Jewish friends and neighbors who, for them, this is a still a living text. And they have a different connection to the text and a different connection to uh, the Jerusalem temple. And so we're going to we're going to. I'm just going to pause there and, and not really continue down that path anymore. But 
I want to just name that, that caution. I also want to say throughout all these chapters, there's a suspense building. There's an anticipation as they assemble the tabernacle and arrange all the furniture and put it where it needs to be. There's this, there's this buzz and excitement in the camp. And there's a stereotype about gay men as interior designers. And I think it's true, right? Can I just make it true? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it's after all that time in the ugliness of the closet, we want to inhabit uh, the beauty of holiness. And so I think we want to have a fabulous place. And we want to make things uh, uh, fabulous. And so I just want to say that there's a sense in which What's the excitement? What's this? What are you anticipating? We are anticipating in these chapters: Is God really going to dwell with us? Is God really going to show up once we once we you know uh, furnish the place? Is is God going to show up? And the answer is yes. God shows up, and you get the glory of the Lord profoundly as the conclusion to Exodus appearing brilliantly within this tabernacle. And I want to say that it's the Lord's coming out in a way. We've sort of got the Lord in drag, clothed in human symbols, um, and even in the person of Christ, clothed in human flesh, like God taking on an appearance or a performance or a um, garb that we can understand. Um, and uh, yeah, so and I also think humans get a chance to be in drag as well. We get to be clothed in divine glory, even in the temple. And so all of this temple imagery is blurring of boundaries. So, so much about holiness is about separation, but there's another piece of holiness that is about blurring, that is about finding the joy and the sparkles in where does this overlap? Where does this connect? Where does this sort of transgress our categories? That is holiness breaking through. And speaking of temples, I want to talk about Lori Lee Hall. She is an amazing woman, amazing spiritual leader. She also was for many years a main, I forgot her exact title, one of the main temple architects for the church. I think she designed or consulted on dozens of the temples that were built. You know who I'm talking about? No, I don't know this person. Okay, well, she's she's great, and she happens to also be a transgender woman. And so I find it especially beautiful that when the scriptures are written about our generation, just like we're reading about who uh, who built the tabernacle, we're going to read about the trans woman who used her talents and used her brilliance and used her experience and used all of her skill and talent, kind of like the Israelites did. She used that to build the temples. And I talked with her. She did not do, I think if I remember this right, she did not do any work on the Boston temple except the steeple. I think she designed the steeple. So we can go to the Boston temple and see the work of an amazing woman here. So yeah, isn't that exciting? That's pretty cool. I had, I did not know this name. I did not know this piece of history. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Lori Lee Hall and I spoke on a panel together just last week and it was it was pretty oh. cool yeah snap what was that for it was like reacting to gender and god and heavenly mother and how do different people um uh yeah well ain't that interesting yeah okay that's cool derek that is cool thank you for sharing that 
Yeah, and I, I want to just briefly mention um, Exodus 25, 22, and Numbers 7, 89, which uh, are sort of outside of our text. But let me just jump to Numbers here. And here's what it says. And when Moses came into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he would hear the voice being spoken to him from above the covering that is over the Ark of the Covenant from between the two cherubim, and he would speak to him. And that is, the Lord would speak to Moses. So the Lord speaks, and this is from Alder's translation. So the Lord speaks to Moses from a spot between, in the empty space, in the negative space between the two cherubim, where you have this this cloud and 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 thunder and and amazingness, right? And I find this very very sort of the reverse of what idolatry of the surrounding nations was where these nations would create a little idol and have that be the focus in in a weird way it's the negative space that is the image of god isn't that interesting this sort of ambiguous empty space between that's where the voice comes from and i find it so interesting that our image of god here is that of this negative space this mysterious space between right how do you this sort of something without definition without form without figure i think there is something very queer about that that's our image of god and the other image of god we get in the torah of course is that of all humans of all genders like all of us male and female and everything in between are created in the image and likeness of god according to genesis 1 so i think all of our images of god are queer uh, when you look at it from a queer lens. So I don't know why people want to to shoehorn God and gender and all this other stuff into a very narrow box that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't even make sense for a lot of straight women. It doesn't make sense for a lot of straight men. It doesn't make sense for a lot of cisgender folks. It's just a big mess. Speaking of big mess, while we're here, let's talk about the DC Temple open house video. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> so did you see this video? Yeah, I, I, I did see the video, and yeah, I saw the video. So for those that didn't want to see the video, it's on the Church Newsroom YouTube channel. You go there, and they brought a whole bunch of dignitaries and special invited guests through the temple um, before the main open house opens to the public. They had some special guests, and they had special tours where leaders of the church brought these dignitaries through and explained it to them uh, what it meant, what the temple meant to them. And then they filmed people's reactions afterward. And there were two LGBTQ individuals who named that they were LGBTQ and said they felt a place of welcome and they felt peace and they felt just so welcome and peaceful and so loved by this community because of how they were treated at the open house. And, um, there also seemed to be a lot of people of color in this video. There were. <laughs> and so what were your thoughts on this video? Um, you know, it seemed innocuous enough at first. And, you know, by at, by at first, I mean in like the first 30 seconds of this little less than four minute video. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, I just noticed a continuation of a pattern 
where the church will bring in LGBTQ folks, people of color, and we'll put them all over their, their media stuff. Like we'll, we'll, like in conference, when there's visual aids, we'll be all over the place. You know, we're in pamphlets. We are in the, um, the handbooks, the teaching materials. And then I go to church and, you know, I mean, I happen to live in Harlem, so there's significantly more black mm-hmm. folks here than mm-hmm. just about any other congregation I might visit in America. But it presents it presents this picture, like videos like this, Temple Open House video, it presents this picture that we are more diverse and more accepting than we actually are. It looks very aspirational. Yeah. And that's like the only positive thing I can like point to. Uh, when it comes to these materials, like I wish this is how we looked and I wish this is how we actually were in terms of our acceptance of, you know, people of color and members of the LGBTQ community. I wish we were the church that the LGBTQ folks in that in that uh, open house video described us to be. I, I really wish we were. But that's yeah, not me too. quite who we are. That's not quite who we are. Like you might feel this way at the open house, but when push comes to shove, if queer people are in relationships or if they like want to get married and stuff, they can't go into the temple at this particular moment in time. And that's like something that has to be acknowledged at some point. Um, I, I don't like that we paint this aspirational picture of ourselves and don't do much to work toward that picture. Like we had, I don't know when this video came out exactly, but you know, if it came out in the last week or two, then it came out on the heels of a general conference where President Oaks doubled down on our queer phobic stances as a, uh, as a church. And that's a problem. I got no problem with aspirational things being put out into the ether if that is what we are working toward. But don't show me like pictures of all these Mm -hmm. people of color in this video while we are doing very little to work to become that church where people of color are welcome. Don't show me uh, videos of queer people saying they feel welcome at our open house or feel warm and, you know, loved in our temples while we are not working to become a church where queer people are actually allowed in our temples. Like that leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And perhaps that's, you know, a little bit, perhaps that's being overly negative or overly cynical, but, you know, I've been a member of this church a long time. I know what kind of church we are. I know what church we ought to be. And the church does this kind of thing often enough where I'm just, you know, put out by it. I need us to be leaning into these aspirations a little bit more before I'm able to feel okay, or at the very Mm -hmm. least not Mm -hmm. disgusted by videos like this temple open house video. Right. Yeah. It's, it's tough because like, like you've said before, we've got a, a major problem in, I, so in the United States, I think we're about 12 to 13% black, the United States Correct. as a whole, but in the United States, uh, in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the United States, we're, I'm guessing less than 1% black. Less than one percent, yeah. Less than one percent. Obviously, we've got members. Of, we've got members of color in Latin America. We've got black folks in Africa, right? And we've got people in Asia. But if in the United States, the church should be at least as good. Uh, as, I mean, as it should be at least as representative of the people, 
when you have this disproportionate um, unrepre- if 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 our population in the church does not represent the the demographics of our country, we know that there's a systemic bias happening right. in some way, right? And right. so why right. don't we have more black folks? Why don't we have more black folks in leadership, right? I think there's a we've talked about this before. Anyway, so let's yes, sir. get back to my main point about the temple can be a queer space. And I don't have time to talk about this right now. Maybe I'll talk about it some and I've talked about it elsewhere before. But I think there's this there's this especially um when you look at the dissolving power of love, how love dissolves boundaries and how love reaches across boundaries. Like you see this reaching across in both directions from heaven to earth. And this is like in the temple, heaven and earth connect and the veil between the two becomes thin. Like it literally is all about dissolving that binary, right? And I think ultimately dissolving the binary between life and death is something that uh, the temple points towards and something that the resurrection of Christ accomplished. Anyway. So it's already a queer space is what you're saying. It can be seen as a queer space, right? I'm not. I'm mm-hmm. not out to tell everyone. I'm not out to gaslight people and say, "Oh, well, actually, it's queer already." And I'm not going to say it that way. But okay. there's room for people to empower their own uh, approach to the temple and realize, "Hey, let's 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 make the temple accountable to what it's actually supposed to be." Right? It's supposed to be a queer space. It's not. It's mm-hmm. really not. But it's supposed to be. So let's hold uh, our community and our leaders accountable to what the temple is. Like I love the Isaiah 56 narrative um, because it says the temple is, should be a house of prayer for all peoples. All people. Mm-hmm. No discrimination. All people. I think the temple should be open to non-members. I think the temple should be open to everyone. Right? Everyone. Come, come and see. Right? I don't mm-hmm. think uh, maybe I'm a little bit more radical, but like it should be open to non-members. Like, oh well, that's a long conversation. A lot of people might not even be. I think a lot of people in the progressive world in the Latter Day Saint uh, context might not even be ready for to hear that the temple should be open to everybody. But oh well. Perhaps we can talk about it again once we get to uh, Paul in the New Testament next year. Yeah, uh, I, I I got a lot of thoughts on interfaith Paul. Um, yeah, I would love to talk right. about this again once we right. get there. I think, and here's here's my thing about people non-members. What about convert marriages? Like, okay, your baby's going to be sealed in this temple, and the rest of your you're not a member of the church, and through no fault of your own, you're not a member of the church, but your kid went and abandoned your tradition and and joined joined with the Latter-day Saints and now is getting married in the temple and you can't go to your baby's wedding. That is one of the most unfamily things. Like, we're supposed to be a family-friendly church. That is one of the most family-unfriendly things you can do. That is spiritual violence against families mm-hmm. in a way that's not of the Lord. It's um, really interesting you say that. I was, I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday who went to a Latter-day Saint wedding in Provo and they were talking about being in the lobby with uh, the bride's sister and the sister could not attend the wedding because they had distanced themselves Mm -hmm. you know from the church obviously my friend was not a member but like also you know just what you said there it's very family unfriendly that you know the Mm -hmm. bride's sister in this particular moment couldn't even be a witness to her sister's wedding and uh you know i think that's a problem 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's I, I can't imagine Jesus doing that to to people mm. of saying like, oh, I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to, right? Well, anyway, right. I'm getting way off my notes. I'm not even, <laughs> I'm still at the beginning of my notes. Oh, no. Oh, wow. <laughs> Let me just okay. talk real quickly about Leviticus then. Uh, I might have to s- save some stuff. I might have to just put something in another format because... Uh, you know, maybe write an essay or write a blog post or something because I can't cover all of Leviticus well. I want to say a couple okay. things. Number one is Leviticus is about being holy. And holy really means to be set apart, to be marked out for a special purpose. Holy is not the opposite of evil. It's the opposite of, of common or everyday or ordinary, right? There's stuff that we do that's ordinary. And then there's stuff that we do that's special, right? And then I think mm-hmm. this is the very the same difference between uh, straight people and queer people. Que- straight is ordinary and queer is special, right? So I think queer is analogous to holy in this case, something that's marked, something that's like has a different purpose, something that's set apart, something that's marked out. And the main theme of Leviticus is that, A, God is holy. God is different. God is different than all the other gods. God is different than uh, than a bunch of other stuff, right, uh, of ordinary experience, and that God's people are to be also holy and set apart, to be marked out as different for a special purpose, not to be segregated of like, oh, we're going to be off here and we're going to be cool so that, you know, in our exclusive club. No, it's to be set apart for the purpose of service, right? Let's look at mm-hmm. our cruciform model of this. Christ is here as a servant, and that's the lens through which I I'll look through all of these things about what holiness is for is not that you can be away from the, from the world, but that you can serve the world and be a salt, uh, the salt of the earth that's that spices and seasons and and makes the whole earth world better because of our presence. Mm-hmm. Right now, I I honestly think that in many cases, Latter Day Saints might make the world worse. Like if you look at what we okay. do um, politically, economically all this other stuff. We could be doing a lot more good in the world, but um, we I hope we, we can do better on these things. And the Lord is crying about this. Like the Lord, we are the Lord's chosen people, but God has always been very disappointed with God's chosen people. Amen? So, Amen. Um, <laughs> so Levit- Leviticus is about being holy and set apart, being about being different than the other nations. Like there's some contrasts here of like, yeah, just don't do this because that's the way the Canaanites did it. And we do have mm-hmm. to um, wrestle with the text in some ways uh, because there's going to be some challenging things in Leviticus, not just about um, anti-LGBTQ uh, appropriations of the text, but there's things that um, pose challenges for the way we talk about women, the way we talk about people with illnesses, the way we talk about priesthood, the way we talk about um, enslavement, right? There's just a whole bunch of stuff here that the way things were done in Leviticus is not, well, I mean, it's a complicated thing, right? And so we have to wrestle with this text. It is the text that we inherited, um, or some people would say we appropriated, and we will uh, we will have to do that responsibly, and and we can't just pretend the text is not there. Uh, that would be um, an option too, 
move. Just just throw out everything. And we can't pretend that and we can't just uh, apologetically go with everything that's in the text because that would lead to hor- horrific injustices in, in many cases. Absolutely. But we have to go option three with the text and wrestle with it and figure out and retell the story. And I want to talk about retelling the story because uh, Jews and Christians uh, both have had to retell Leviticus. Like Jews, for example, no longer have a temple and no longer have a, um, a, a the, the priesthood system in place the way it was in Leviticus. Um, they no longer have the sacrificial system in place. And so there's just a bunch of ways that uh, our Jewish siblings have had to retell the story. So when we look at Hebrews, um, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it does retell creatively some pieces of Exodus and Leviticus about the the, the sacrificial system and how it points to Christ and how the atonement points, you know, the day of atonement points to Christ and all this other stuff. And that is a choice. It's not implicit in in the text, in a in a way that we can play gotcha with our Jewish friends and neighbors, so I'm just saying, yeah, we we do have to go option three, and Hebrews and other parts of the New Testament are definitely a creative option three retelling of pieces of the Torah, and we just it's I think it's okay to do that, but you have to name that that's what you're doing. And I wanted to talk a little bit about exegesis versus eisegesis. Have we talked about Have you talked about this at Union? Versus, I, no, no. Okay, so exegesis is... Well, define eisegesis first, then then I can tell you. Yeah, so exegesis is the drawing out of the meaning of a text, and eisegesis uh-huh. is the putting in, okay? Uh, so ex and ice are the uh, prepositions of out and in in Greek. And so drawing out from the text something that's already there, like finding the author's original meaning and what their intent was. And eisegesis is importing your own meaning into the text and and uh, and, and putting it there. And there's a sense in which most people think that exegesis is what you want and eisegesis is bad because you're sticking your biases in there and you're distorting the text. But I'm I'm about to say, you know what, we're all bringing our biases to the text. There's no neutral exegesis. And so that kind of distinction is a problem to begin with. I do think that we should avoid uh, blatantly misrepresenting the text, and we should be conscious of of our biases when we talk about the text, but there is a place for playing with the text in a certain way. For example, there's a difference between what the text meant and what the text means now and or what it could mean now like we're supposed to liken the scriptures unto ourselves so historical Mm -hmm. criticism is one way of reading the text where you're trying to uncover what the original text meant to the original audience or the original community they produced it and that is that is a valid historical conversation to have but that's not the only conversation you can have with the text right just like when someone writes a song that song can later take on new meanings as different people listen to it and different people make build their lives out of something in that song. And now it means something new to a new community as people continue to sing it. And so that is how it is with traditional scripture that gets handed down is it's going to take on new meanings. And as we liken the scriptures unto ourselves, um, I just want to remind people what Jesus taught about this. He said, therefore, every expert in the law who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and old. So I think it's totally fine to bring stuff 
um, out of uh, out of of the scriptures. And I think it's also valid to bring your whole self to scripture. I'm part of what I'm reacting to is I saw this video of a of an evangelical criticizing a queer pastor, and the queer pastor was talking about um, Lazarus is coming out of the tomb as a coming out story. And it literally is a coming out story. And this evangelical preacher says, oh, that's not what the text meant. And coming out is a modern idiom, and that's not what it meant at that time. And the queer community, our response is, well, duh. We know that. You don't think we know that, right? We know that, but we're going to play with the text as we're drawn and inspired by the Spirit to connect with what the text is doing and how it's calling us today. Because if you look what happens, it's about new life. It is literally about Lazarus coming back. It is, And there's a communal piece to it because Jesus says, he says to Lazarus, come out. But he says to the people, unbind him and let him go. So there's a communal piece that has to happen when someone comes out to take care of someone in their new life, right? And so I think there is a... a um, there's room for pastoral approaches. There's room for allegorical approaches. There's room for figurative approaches to the text. As long as you know that's what you're doing, there's nothing There's nothing wrong with that, provided that it's done in love and provided that it's not done to hurt people and you're not distorting the mm-hmm. text in order to empower yourself to hurt other people, right? But anyway, so let me give you an example of that, and this is going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So many of our Jewish friends... Not all of them, right? Uh, Jews are not a monolith, um, and probably most Jews don't do this, but many Jews uh, do, and this is the practice of tefillin and mezuzah. And tefillin are these boxes which contain a parchment in them, uh, and this parchment contains parts of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema on it, and uh, these are bound, literally bound, to the forehead and to the arm of of observant Jews, who then wrap these straps around to tie the uh, the scriptures, these particular scriptures, to their forehead and to their arm. And it's the same uh, thing is done uh, with the doorpost. You will see Jewish homes have a mezuzah, and inside the mezuzah is a scroll of parchment that contains this text, because the Lord literally says, you know, bind this to your your. Uh, uh, forehead and bind this to your doors and bind this to your um, arm. And now here's where some anti-Semitism comes in. People will, Christians will look at that and say, oh, they're missing the point and, and they're doing this because they don't know any better and it's, it's figurative, it's clearly figurative. Well, let me just say this. If you can see something in the text, so can our Jewish friends, Right. If it's so clear to you, it's clear to them too. That's not what this is about. It's there. It's a completely different game going on here. And so when they um, don to fill in is is the what they how it's uh, said when they don to fill in, they're doing it not because they don't know any better. They can clearly see these symbols and figures of speech in the text just as well as everyone else can, but. Within their tradition, they are making meaning out of it by consciously and deliberately choosing to engage with the text and taking it um, within this system, taking it literally on purpose, right? We can do that Mm -hmm. if we know that that's what we're doing. And so let me tell you about a new spiritual practice that I've developed. 
I am so excited about this spiritual practice because I um I, I can't wait to use it uh in in public for the first time. Yeah, I'm ready. You've been teasing it for a couple of days, so so what is the spiritual practice you're engaging in? So um I thought to myself, I don't really have, what am I going to do if I'm in the ward and I'm sitting there and someone gets up their testimony and, and speaks something and they say something homophobic? Or what if I'm going to, sitting in a, in a class, elders quorum, gospel doctrine, if someone says something homophobic, what do I do in that moment? And I have found out what I'm going to do in that moment. And it's based on the explicit commandment of the Son of God in Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. And I'm going to read here from the New English Translation. Here's what it says. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and reject you as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and jump for joy because your reward is great in heaven. For their ancestors did the same things to the prophets. And so I was actually reading this in Greek a few days ago, and I noticed something that is very interesting. This verb here, to jump for joy, skirtao, is used uh, uh, only thrice in the New Testament. It's used here in Luke 6, and it's also used by Luke twice in Luke chapter 1 to refer to the uh, baby uh, John, baby John the Baptist, leaping for joy in his mother's womb, in Elizabeth's womb. So it says, rejoice in that day and jump for joy. So here's what I'm going to do. as If someone says something homophobic from the pulpit or in the class or whatever, like marriage is only between a man and a woman or something like that, I'm going to literally jump in the air for joy. And my intention is that my feet will be off the ground before that person finishes the final syllable of their homophobic nonsense. And I will jump for joy, and I will clap. And in order to express my joy, I figured out, what am I going to do? I have to say something. I've already picked out the Bible verse. You know I've picked out the Bible verse, right? Of course you did. And it's going to be from Psalm 150, verse 6, which in Hebrew is kol haneshema tehalel ya, hallelujah. And in English it means, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. And so that is literally what I'm going to do. People are going to be like, oh, no, that's not literal. I mean, like, yeah, so what? It's a command from the Lord. And as a spiritual practice, I'm going to um, obey the commandments. Are you trying to tell me not to obey Jesus's commandments here? Right. That's what I'm going to say. And so I will literally be in the air clapping and jumping for joy because I was treated as Christ. You know what? There's a particular conference talk that I'm not going to name. But uh, that's, I was, um, yeah, there was exclusion and insults and rejection. Um, and yeah, it's a lot like uh, what Jesus faced from his religious leaders. In fact, his religious leaders uh, told him that he was in league with the devil. I hear that. Um, and I'm just going to be glad, right? Because the more I'm pressed closer to Christ, that is something that is literally something to rejoice for, right? That I am pushed closer to Christ. That's how they treated the prophets. Um, that's how they treated Christ, and that's how they treated me. And I, um, I will literally jump for joy. 
So, so yeah, that's my new spiritual practice, and it will allow me to be so much more resilient and fearless. Like, now I can go anywhere because I'm prepared, right? Our church is all about being prepared and emergency preparedness. Well, now I'm prepared. So if anyone says anything straight supremacist in front of me, I know exactly what I'm going to do. It will protect myself, it will protect the community, and it will be obedient to the explicit commandment of Christ. So... There you go. What do you think of that? Isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. It yeah. I'm no longer is, afraid uh, anymore. I'm no longer afraid anymore. The old Derek is back. Yay. Old, old Derek, Derek is, is back. back. The old Derek is back. The people don't know about this conversation we've been having about the old Derek and the new Derek. So I'm happy for you, but hopefully we can uh, have this conversation another day yeah. in greater detail about uh, Yeah, because I'm getting way off topic from this Leviticus thing. I have like, oh, this is a big mess. Oh, big mess. Oh, sorry, everyone. Big mess. Oh, no. Ah! <laughs> it's Like, it's fine. we're running we'll, up uh, we'll on get, time. We'll get right back to it. We'll so, get right back to it. Let's go on to um, more in Leviticus. Like So basically, that's kind of what I was going to say about Leviticus chapter 1. We've got several sacrifices there. We've got this priesthood stuff. And I think we need to, when we talk about these sacrifices, don't jump directly to, um, to a straightforward uh, uh, an appropriation of the text of like, look, this is a proof text for we're getting it right and everyone else is getting it wrong. That's not what it's for because what we're doing and what Joseph did is a creative retelling of the biblical tradition. And we just have to admit that and flow with it. Like Jesus did the same thing. Paul did the same thing. They got creative with the tradition they inherited because that is how the spirit was moving them at that time and place. So right. Leviticus 11 is all about the kashrut system. And I'm not going to talk about that other than to say it's a one way of separating, right? Separating kosher animals from, from non-kosher. It's also a way about separating the people because now people can't eat together, right? You have to have your own special food, which means you now cannot mingle with other communities. Uh, let's look at Leviticus 16. This is about Yom Kippur. Now I have to talk about this really quickly. Now Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. Literally, um, kapar is the verb to cover, right? So our sins are covered. They're, 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 go they're, they're, they're gone. And here's what's one thing that people miss, especially Christians, is that Yom Kippur only works for sins against God. Sins between humans and God, that can be covered through these sacrifices, and that can be covered through the Day of Atonement, which uh, happens once a year to cover all these other things that, that you didn't cover in some other way. But... And this is still true. I think a lot of Christians think, well, just God will forgive me for, for all my sins. But in Judaism, in rabbinic Judaism, that is not the case. Yom Kippur only covers your sins between humans and God. Sins between humans and humans, you have to go to that human and ask forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I, uh, I just want to name, uh, let's look at Leviticus 6, 1 through 7. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but it's... Uh, chapter 5, verses 20 through 26 in Hebrew. Uh, sometimes, by the way, the numbering between the English and the Hebrew differs. So Robert Alter's translation numbers according to the Hebrew. So let me look up that real quick. And here's what it says. I wish I had time to read it because it's so, it's pretty good. Uh, oops, I'm in numbers. I got to get back to Leviticus. Leviticus. 
Okay. And um, so, yeah, here's here it is. Basically, what happens, it says that if you if there's an offender who um, cheats someone else by theft or fraud um, or stealing their property, then uh, guess what happens? So the offender needs to restore to the person they stole from or the person they deceived or defrauded the value of the thing they stole plus one-fifth, plus one-fifth more. And in addition to making restitution and reparation to the actual human they hurt, they also have to offer a ram to the Lord as a guilt offering. Now, isn't that interesting? A lot of Christians say, well, just I can just be right with the Lord and I don't have to, to make it right with the person, right? And I think there's a very clear, uh, because of how it is so clear in the text, there's one thing you have to do to be right with your fellow human and then another thing to be right with God. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, man. And I think a lot of people say, well, where's the biblical basis for reparations or like the atonement covered it all? <laughs> yeah, I, there's something really, really, there's pastoral mis- malpractice when someone comes to you in pain because of a human to human injustice and someone says, oh, the, the atonement of Christ will cover it all. I mean, like, yeah, but that person is still on my foot. What happened to actually fixing the problem? And don't you dare use the the atonement to cover up the, the not you, James. I'm talking to this hypothetical person. Right, 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 right. Don't you dare use Jesus and his atonement to cover up the fact of something that's completely contrary to what Jesus taught. Here's what Jesus taught in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, Sermon on the Mount. Everyone should really know the Sermon on the Mount well. Jesus said, so then if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your gift. What, you're, what we're saying is here is reconciliation between humans takes precedent over and cannot take the place of making your offering to God and sacrificing stuff to God. In fact, you need to delay what you're doing with God so you can fix your injustice that you did to someone else, right? Hmm. So let's just uh, pause there. I, I am talking way too much. Sorry about this. Um, <laughs> it's fine, man. Is it, so here's another question. Is it permissible to violate the laws of Shabbat to save a life? What do you think? Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, I feel, yeah. So um, let's look at and, – and here's the thing is what is the, the text from which the rabbis derive this principle? And I can tell you the exact verse that this is derived from. It's derived from Leviticus 18 verse 5, and let me read it for you in Alter's translation. And you shall keep my statutes and my laws, which a person shall do and live through them. Um, another way of translating that is to say, and these are the commandments that you shall do, and if a man do, he shall live by them. And the rabbis have said, it doesn't say he shall die by them, it says he shall live by them, which implies that the purpose of these commandments isn't death. Like if you are, uh, for example, if your house is burning down, there's a prohibition against uh 
extinguishing a fire on Shabbat. You cannot extinguish fire on Shabbat. But if you need to do it to save a life, you may do it because it doesn't make sense uh, to to uh, to prioritize the commandments that way. And why doesn't it make sense? Because here it says these commandments are given so that we can live by them. So if we're dying by them, it's not we're not doing them in the right way. So in rabbinic Judaism, you may uh, violate any commandment with the exception of three in order to save someone's life. You may violate any commandment to save someone's life with the exception of idolatry because in that case, it is better to die for your faith than to, to, uh, to bow down to an idol. Um, sexual immorality and... Um, oh, dear. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and uh, uh, murder. That's the other one. You're not allowed to murder mm-hmm. to, to save a life. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so my point is, now here's something brilliant that the rabbis did. They said that it was permissible to save a life on Shabbat. And, um, and, and part of that was, well, if this Jew dies on Shabbat just because they didn't want to break the commandment, well, then they die. Like that's the end of that person's Jewish life. Whereas if they live, they will live to, to keep many, many more Shabbats, right? For the rest of their life, they'll have all these Shabbats. So it's actually more in the spirit of keeping Shabbat to keep them alive so they can keep more Shabbat, right? So I love the way the rabbis wrestle with this. And it solves a problem because some people would want to take the text to say, oh, you should not violate any of God's commandments ever, and you should rather die than, than violate a commandment. And the rabbis are like, nope, we're not going to play that game. And here's the brilliant piece of what the rabbis did is instead of saying not only may you break Shabbat to sacri- – uh, not only may you break Shabbat in order to save someone's life, but you must break Shabbat to save someone's life. It's not an option. Jewish law is – that you must save someone's life even by breaking uh, Shabbat. And here's, here's why, because here's what might happen. If they just said, well, it's allowed to. You're allowed to, to, to break Shabbat in order to save someone's life, but it's not as good as, as just dying for the, for the sake of the commandment. Then there would be this pressure to, uh, to, 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 to let people die on Shabbat. Because people are going to be pressured to be righteous, and they're going to use this uh, scrupulosity and this perfectionism, and they're going to want to want to uh, keep God's commandments, right? So what the rabbis have ruled is said, well, actually, God's commandment is it actually flips your obligation now flips the the other direction, and not only may you save someone's life, but you must save someone's life. So the more pious you are, the more you will save them, and not the more you will keep Shabbat. I wish we had more of a sense of this in our in our context, in the Latter-day Saint context. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, Are you talking about our own Sabbath observance? Well. Anything in specific, anything in particular? Um, so, yes, I'm thinking about something. And here's just one example. There's going to be people, like uh, um, sort of immature people in the Latter-day Saint community, that are going to say something like, oh, well, if you have a choice between paying tithing and feeding your family, ah. you should pay tithing, right? And like, got you. That is an abomination before the Lord. 
that attitude is an abomination before the Lord. It does not come from Jesus. It does not come from the Spirit. It comes from people who want to worship an institution rather than like 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 there's this hypocrisy like we're supposed to be the family church right we're all about families like uh-huh. and here you're literally starving your family right if you're if your kids are going to to starve because you paid tithing then then a, a bunch of wrong things happened first of all the community wasn't there for you when they needed you second of all you're being pressured to pay tithing when you when you need to feed your family third of all um a whole bunch of commandments around social justice within the church and within mm-hmm. society are being violated if you are uh, we're going to get to Leviticus 19 that has protections for people with poverty okay we've got a whole bunch of stuff wrong happening if someone is is now having to choose between paying tithing and feeding their family but if they end up with that choice and they are pressured into paying tithing that is abusive it is absolutely abusive i don't know where from what mouth of hell that idea came from but it did not come from the lord and let me tell you why because we have a commandment here and i that's what i had to stop and look up this is in first timothy 5 uh, verse 8 and here's what it says but if someone does not provide for his own especially his own family he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever like providing for your family is so important that if you don't do it you're an un- you're worse than an unbeliever so how dare someone say tithing is a higher priority than that if you pay tithing rather than feed your family you are worse than an unbeliever you think you are righteous but you are a hypocrite and you are uh, probably not you are the hypocrite because this person may be a victim of the culture that produced this type of thinking but mm-hmm. this idea that certain commandments trump other commandments is is biblical, right? This is goes all the way back to right. e- Eve. She's like, I, I'm prioritizing one commandment over the other. And people of all situations are going to have to do this. But I'm saying you got to know which one are the ones to prioritize. And if you think tithing to a multi-billion rich institution is more important than feeding your family because there's a relational piece in that. If you let your kid starve, how is that kid going to feel about you? How is that kid going to like, like I, this is just make, make I, I better stop talking about this. But my point is I wish we had more sense and more spirit driven um, approaches to the commandments than, than like, Oh, did you do, did you pay your tithing? Did you do, you know, all these external things. And well, anyway, I'm rambling on. I'm taking up all the time. I've basically talked for an hour, and you haven't talked much, and we still haven't gotten to Leviticus 19. So I'm sorry. Let's get there. Um, uh, oh, no. Okay, let's get Bad. there now. I can always edit. I can always edit. It's fine. Okay, let's get there anyway. to Leviticus 19. What do you have to say about Leviticus 19? Well, first of all, Derek, thank you for explaining that. Like, I did ask you the question. I did ask you to expound further on, you know, you know, this particular concept of, you know, having this kind of immature faith. So thank you for providing an example in our Latter-day Saint context of how we might misappropriate these commandments in ways that are harmful to us. But, uh, you know, what you just said actually segues very well into what I wanted to cover in Leviticus 19, because this is where we get pretty heavy into, uh, you know, the social ethics aspect of, uh, mm-hmm. of biblical teachings. And this also brings us back to the theme 
of holiness and uh, brings us back to what the whole book of Leviticus is about in the first place. Like the Leviticus chapter 19 begins with a pretty radical statement. In verse 2, it says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, Amen. Amen. am holy, which is just really it's it's prof- it's really interesting but it's prof- it's a profoundly radical statement and to make sure that we live properly into that statement we have to have a proper understanding of uh what and who God is and we also have to make sure our relationship and definition with the word holy are uh, proper and appropriate uh, but anyway you've already talked about this Derek but the entire book of Leviticus seems to be distinguishing between you know the profane and the common and the holy uh, humankind is put squarely in the uh, not holy category, it seems, for most of the book of Leviticus. You could crudely summarize the book of Leviticus mm-hmm. as saying that God is holy and humans are not. And this tends to feed the negative associations we may have with the word holiness. And also, Derek, thank you for talking about what this word actually means and making sure that people understand that this isn't something uh, that is judgmental and legalistic. That's not the, that's not holiness like when we say holy we don't mean it in a way that characterizes god as a judgmental and legalistic being but with our understanding of god as a loving creator and apparent to us all their command to be holy is much less one of judgment and condemnation and more one that is aspirational and life-giving so in like the command to be holy then becomes an invitation from god to live the most abundant life possible. And the following verses in this chapter are a, uh, they're, they're a gift of specific things we can do to live that abundant life. Now, to be clear, not everything in these verses seems to fall into that category. We're going we're, we're gonna to read verses about animal husbandry, uh, how long to leave fruit on trees, and uh, cutting hair and stuff like that sprinkled uh, among these teachings. So we're, we're, we're taking on a bit of a treasure hunt as we, as we go through Leviticus 19. Um, also, though, what is interesting is that pretty much all the teachings that follow this command to be holy, these are all ethical teachings, teachings that benefit not just ourselves, but the rest of our community, teachings that move us into lives uh, specifically of honesty, of justice, and of integrity and we could spend a decent amount of time on any one of these so so you know let's just get to it i'm I'm going to go ahead and skip to verse like verses three through eight we we immediately in the following of the commandment to be holy we we get reiterations of some of the ten commandments uh honoring your father and your mother uh you know and so on but i want to skip to verses nine through Mm -hmm. ten oh good this is about this is about gleaning and you taught us about gleaning i can't remember if it was in the Doctrine and Covenants unit or if it was in the uh, in the Book of Mormon unit, but you did teach us about the gleaning, and I believe you sourced this verse when we talked about gleaning, and you also referred to uh, you know the story of Ruth, of course, where gleaning is featured most prominently. But uh, this is a verse about gleaning, and it's also it's actually about something deeper. So let me just go ahead and read these verses nine through ten. When you reap the harvest of your land. You shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. 
you shall leave them for the poor and the alien, punctuated by, I am the Lord your God, close quote. All throughout the text, God demonstrates their concern for the poor. The Israelites weren't to greedily hoard every bit of profit out there in the fields. They were to leave some of the harvest behind as a provision for the less fortunate. I recently got to use this scripture in a uh, campaign on campus here for living wages uh, for the security Mm -hmm. workers. The impoverished who are able to work aren't only entitled to life, but they're going to but like they're also entitled to a living wage. Like if we wanted to use this or uh, quote this verse in a really conservative way and say, okay, this is protecting people's right to work. We, we have to, at the very least, uh, say that this is uh, demanding of us work opportunities that, the, that at the very least take care of people in poverty. Like people are at the very least entitled to a living wage if they got to work. We tell the poor to help themselves all the time. And then when they stay poor because we don't leave enough to glean, we stay mad at them for being poor. Like none of that is on the rest of us. And, you know, we see this and other texts make clear that we have an obligation to make sure that the poor don't stay wanting, that we are not hoarding resources, Mm -hmm. and that when we have people work, that we at the very least make sure they're able to work for something that can sustain them, not in ways that keep them in poverty. And uh, that's just one piece of justice that's present in this text. I'll more or less speed through the rest of this. Yeah, well, could I just add one interesting thing? It's that it's not just the poor, but also the, how did your alien or stranger or, or um, foreigner, yeah. however. You alien should. is how the, uh, that's how the uh, new NSRV uh, translates. Uh, well, part of that uh, is stranger. the stranger, this is the foreign resident, would not have owned land. Like they're, they're an immigrant. They don't, they're not part of the ancestral inheritance of the land that was all divided, right? And so mm-hmm. um, now if there's a, like a rich foreigner, then they wouldn't need to, to, to glean. But this is, we're talking about someone who doesn't right. have land, who does not have the means of production, who does not have the mm-hmm. structural place in society, right? So it's not just, oh, you're poor because mm-hmm. you're lazy. It's these are people who, for structural reasons— do not have access to the means of generating capital. Now, I, I realize capital is mm-hmm. anachronistic here, but they don't have that. And so this is really about um, about structural solutions. This isn't just a handout to poor people because they you know, had bad luck. This is we've got a structural right. solution to a structural problem. This isn't charity. This is, this is something right. that... Uh, is is something way deeper than that and leads to a society that is holiness. Okay, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. Appreciate it. So uh, anyway, there's more, like I said, there's more justice in this text. And uh, 11 to 18 goes on a run of, uh, you know, this biblical justice commanding us to uh, not steal, to not swear falsely, to not oppress our neighbors, to not defraud Mm -hmm. workers of their wages, Mm -hmm. to not mistreat the disabled, Mm -hmm. to not render unjust decisions, Mm -hmm. to not... To not display prejudice, we see. To not spread slander. To not harbor hatred. Mm-hmm. To not take revenge. And, oh, I kind of skipped one. It's one of my favorites. And you actually pointed this out to me, uh, Derek, back in the uh, New Testament era. 
this is in verse 16, which reads kind of clumsily in the King James Version and even in the uh, NRSV translation, which I think is why I didn't catch it initially. But it reads, you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor, which, again, kind of a clumsy reading. But the study Bible I use has a footnote uh, with the translation, don't stand idly by when your fellow is in danger. And in Mm -hmm. the common English version, it reads, don't stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed, Mm -hmm. which I think is just a beautiful illustration of what you said in terms of, you know, whether or not it's okay for us to break Shabbat to shave a life. Like, I mean, there it is right there. Don't stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed. Yes, exactly. That's the whole, that's the whole point. And uh, then at the end of this run, a beautiful punctuation and one that's often quoted by Jesus and Paul as the uh, second greatest commandment in the law, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, punctuated by I am the Lord. Mm-hmm. So uh, that it's just a wonderful run, but, uh, verses 11 through 18, all kinds of uh, wonderful ethical teachings for us that are all to the end of teaching us how to live into this holy life. This is the holiness that that uh, the Lord is calling us to. And, uh, you know, it's just beautiful that we get this gift of how to live this life that the Lord is commanding us to live, how to live this life that will give us abundance. And uh, these are all timeless principles that we should learn from. We should also remember, though, that as we look at these passages, not just in Leviticus, but in the rest of the Bible, and this is going to allude back to something that you've already talked about earlier, Derek, but I do want to say more specifically that the Bible is a book of particularities. These writings were written to specific groups of people to address specific issues and circumstances at specific times and places. That is a critical thing to consider when we read. Uh, One of my uh, favorite professors here at uh, Union, uh, or I guess technically he's actually at Columbia, but he says that any reading of the sacred text without context is pretext. Mm -hmm. Let me say that again. Any reading of the sacred text without context is pretext. So like any style, any study of the Bible that doesn't engage the writings in their respective historical and cultural contexts is at best incomplete, if not fatally misleading. That's how you get folks reading uh, scriptures like the ones found in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 and believing that it's okay to mistreat queer folks, you know. We are not reading these texts with that critical eye. We are not reading them in their particular context. And I say all that so we can read verses like 20 through 22 in uh, chapter 19 with a critical eye and in its proper context where we're confronted with the uh, social and sexual politics of ancient Israel, thereby showing us that not every Hebrew Bible commandment makes sense for us in this day. And those same scriptures, those same chapters I just talked about, 18 and 20, Uh, are great examples of this. There are plenty of commandments in those chapters that we don't Mm -hmm. keep at all today because they just don't make sense for us. Um, But anyway, in these texts, for example, there's a commandment about uh, female slaves who are not regarded as free and full purposes. Like this text, this commandment exposes the complexity 
of these laws in a world that most of us today wouldn't rock with because it doesn't, mm-hmm. because first of all, there are slaves, uh, slaves in a different context as well, and also it doesn't regard women or slaves as full persons and free persons. So we have to be able to read these uh, texts in their proper context, lest we get to these uh, you know problematic texts, in some cases, texts of terror, and we're not able to properly address them. And we're, you know, they may even like, terrify us more than they need to because again we're not taking them within their proper context mm-hmm. i mean that doesn't make what the ancient israelites did okay um you know paul later is going to address that misogyny in some in some measure mm-hmm. and is going to further you know state of fulfilling of the law when all these hierarchical boundaries uh you know including the ones along gender lines are erased in such a way that we are more able to fully embrace the community of Christ that we're supposed to be. But I just wanted to make sure that I addressed this need to address these uh, these scriptures in their proper mm-hmm. context, lest we are afraid to wrestle with the text that we're approaching, and also lest we take these scriptures out of their proper context in ways that are extremely harmful. Like I said, at, at best, when we take these scriptures out of their context, they are at best... Uh, incomplete and uh, you know at worst they're fatally misleading uh, gosh there's still a lot to get to I didn't even get to uh, 32 and 37 um, but do you have any thoughts on these verses before we proceed yeah um, I just want to uplift what you said about Leviticus nineteen sixteen, and this is a, a verse that I've had memorized in Hebrew for Many many years, lo ta amod aldam reecha, ani adonai. You shall not. Literally, it's you shall not stand upon the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord, and so you have to do a little work to figure out like what does that mean. And so most mm-hmm. people take it to mean um, do not stand by idly while your neighbor's blood is shed. And I just, I that's why I never understand the people that are anti Black Lives Matter. Because some people are like, uh-huh. well, as long as I'm not killing someone, I'm okay. I don't have to do anything about it. I'm not the one that killed him. Like, no, you are responsible. You are communally um, responsible. Don't do like Cain did and said, am I my brother's keeper? We need to actually work to protect life. We need to protect our neighbor. I mean, that's implicit in the in the love your neighbors yourself. I would not want that done to me. Right, I want. I would want to be, uh, to have my life matter. So I'm going to do that for others. And so, um, yeah, Black Lives Matter. That to me, this is the the Black Lives Matter verse. Um, mm. And yeah, love your neighbors yourself. There's just so many, stu- so much we could say. I better not even start on that. Other than to say <laughs> that almost every other commandment. Uh, between human and human is summed up here. And that that's obviously what Jesus's point was. For example, the, the, the commandment to support same gender marriage. Okay. If you're straight and you want the right to marry, wouldn't you, how would you feel if someone took away your marriage? How would you feel if you were not allowed to marry? Like, I think there's a lot, mm-hmm. a lack of loving your neighbors yourself in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because they're willing to tolerate yeah. the fact that my people for no good reason are arbitrarily, dispossessed of what everyone else considers to be part of a full human life arbitrarily mm-hmm. dispossessed like th- they wouldn't want that 
right? At least, I hate to say at least, but at least in the Catholic community, when Catholic priests tell gay people not to have gay sex, they can say, well, I'm not having sex either. I mean, I'm not asking you to do something I wouldn't do. But here in the in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's worse because all of our leaders are or have been married and then tell us that we not only are going to be deprived in this life, but also deprived in the next one because we didn't we didn't fulfill this whole thing that's that they consider to be part of the Oh, I better stop talking about this. But my point is the commandment to support marginalized groups is implicit in love your neighbor as yourself. Like how would I feel if I were I mean, that's what's so brilliant about what um Jane Elliott does is she makes white people feel just a little tiny taste of what black people feel like and they cry mm-hmm. and they and they scream right she just gives a little taste right. of what it's like to be black and it's not even authentic but it is so painful then why would I want that for anyone right why would I want that for women why would I want that for black folks why would I want that for disabled folks if I wouldn't want it for myself why would I want that for them? I mean, I just don't understand why anyone who can who can take Leviticus eighteen twenty two or Leviticus twenty thirteen and balance that in any way with love your neighbors yourself. I better not start talking about those other verses because I don't have time. Um, <laughs> but I do want to yeah. add a couple of other things. Oh no, I I really think we're just gonna have to let this episode be long. We're gonna let it be long this week, <laughs> or divide it we'll into see. two parts or something. Um, so I wanted to say, uh, this is to me very important. I'm going to have to say it even though I'm taking away too much time. I'm going to go and we're going to talk about 33 and 34. Uh, which Yeah, I was going to actually address those as yeah. well. Yeah, so, uh, so let me read it yeah, and, then, and then we'll hear what you say. And should a sojourner ahead. sojourn with you, you shall not wrong him. Like the native among you shall be the sojourner who sojourns with you. And you shall love him like yourself, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What do you think of that? Mm -hmm. This has very much uh, Mosiah 4 Mm -hmm. energy, kind of like the all we are, are we not all beggars thing. Um, Another verse I use for the Worker Solidarity Project, by the Mm -hmm. way. But, um, you know, we rightfully understand the call to love your neighbor as yourself to be profoundly important. But like the profundity of this particular commandment is that God's love does not stop with a neighbor. One who is in close proximity might even be related to you, but it extends to the one who is different, Mm -hmm. the one who is other. other. Like those are you know, ethical practices that many assume were original to Jesus. And, you know, I love, you know, using teachings like this to talk about Jesus, the social ethicist, which he was more than anything else, but Jesus was also a faithful Jew. You know what I'm saying? Like this came from Mm -hmm. his faith tradition. Mm -hmm. And we have another explanation for the commandment for you were aliens. That's what it says in the NRSV. Sorry to like go back and forth between translations, but that also like as a profound implication that we should not treat people adversely when we were treated so much better when we were in the same position. Like this has Mosiah four energy. This also has the energy of being a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Like it's profound. Did you see Mm -hmm. the video that the black menaces released this past week? No, I didn't. Okay. So they showed a picture of Emmett Till to BYU students. Uh Oh, Oh God. Okay. You can already imagine where this is oh, going. God help but us. The majority of them, they got to like three or four, three or four people did not know who Emmett Till was. 
And that makes me feel a way as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and as a black person, because as a member of the church, we should know who Emmett Till is. And this is Mm -hmm. why. Mm -hmm. We have a heritage, a legacy of state-sanctioned violence against our people. We have a le- we have a legacy of lynching. Like our people were lynched. Our people were mm-hmm. hunted and mm-hmm. killed simply for being different. Mm-hmm. How do we not know who Emmett Till is? Like the founder of our church, the founder of our church was lynched by the state mm-hmm. unjustly. Yeah, and not Joseph Smith. How do we Smith, not know? Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yes, Jesus yes, Christ. I mean, <laughs> but like I'm I'm going to extend that to Joseph Smith as oh, well. Okay. But like Jesus Christ Joseph Smith as well. I'm just saying this will be like, our legacy is oppression. Our experience is oppression. How do we not live into this commandment to take care of the stranger, to look after the marginalized, to look after people that are lynched? This is, our, this is the legacy of our people as Mormons. This is the legacy of our people as Christians. We follow, we worship somebody who was lynched by the state. We, Mm -hmm. like our church was founded by Joseph Smith, somebody who was also lynched by the state. Like how, how do we not know who Emmett Till is? That does not make any sense. does not make any sense. At all. This is our, this is our heritage. This is our legacy. I'm sorry, like kind of went off. But I, when when we read that piece, I was like, this is why that video irked me so much that the Black Menaces put out this week is because as Latter-day Saints, even though not knowing who Emmett Till is, is not unique to BYU students. It's not It's not unique to white people, like being a shown of Emmett Till and not knowing who that is. As Latter-day Saints, we should know. We should right. absolutely know. And, because that is our and heritage. And here's the, the, the thing is, this person who doesn't know who Emmett Till is probably has a lot of opinions about Black Lives Matter. And they have opinions probably. about... Um, politics like it would be different if someone just didn't know Emmett Till and then they didn't do anything bad to black people you know through the but but I think all these people who not knowing Emmett Till and then fulfilling the entire engine that that all was a part of that's that's the hypocrisy for me is is they they probably have opinions about black lives matter they have probably uh, opinions about police brutality they have probably opinions about all these things that are not mm-hmm. informed by the very thing that should inform them anyway i want to talk mm-hmm. about um verses 35 and 36 you shall do no wrong in justice in measure whether in weight or liquid measure honest scales honest weights an honest ephah and an honest hin you shall have these weights and measures I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall keep all my statutes and all my laws and do them. I am the Lord. So, and it's not, here we've got more um, prohibition of unfair advantage. Like what happens if I had, my dad was a, was a merchant and had unfair scales and I inherited his unfair scales. Do I just, well, I didn't, I didn't make them. I mean, I, I didn't know that they were unfair. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that. Yeah, if I inherited this unfair advantage, it's still wrong. It is still wrong, right, to have this unfair advantage mm. over someone else. Let me just quickly oh I don't I don't even know. That's probably the worst joke of all is quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Let me quickly talk about two more things. Um in Levi- uh, I'm ready to move on to Leviticus twenty. You have anything else on Leviticus nineteen? 
I, I better not. I better not. Like, is Leviticus 20 even? Okay, it's not, but why not? Where okay, I just want to say one thing, and I'm not going to read the text, but in the first five verses, you have this prohibition against sacrificing your children to the god Molech. Um, and I just want to name in a very solemn way that we've got a lot of people that are sacrificing their transgender children to a false idol, a false idol of gender essentialism and a false ideology, a false idol, right? People will literally, with religious fervor, harm their children. That is idol worship, and uh, it needs to be condemned, and I just need to say that. Let me go on to Leviticus 25. And I don't have, I could probably talk, I could literally talk an hour about Leviticus 25. But here we have the Shemitah and the Jubilee years. The Shemitah year is every seven years there is a sabbatical year uh, where the crops lay fallow and debts are forgiven. Um, And enslaved people go free uh, every seven years, but that clock starts when they're enslaved. So that's that's a different uh, cycle, but a similar thing happens with the jubilee year. This is at the fiftieth year. And not only do you uh, debts go free and uh, student loans get forgiven, but also the land that had been sold out from under poor people to cover their their debts and expenses now gets returned. It gets reset to the ancestral family. So you do not have this in this centuries accumulation of privilege and power that you have under the situation that we have here in the United States where you just inherit power and you keep inheriting it and you never reset. So my point is both of these years, the Shemitah year and the Jubilee year, year are structural solutions. Why am I saying structural? Because it's not a handout. It's not private charity. It's not like, oh, I see a poor person, I give them money, which is what a lot of Mormons want to do. I imagine that Mormons actually do that. They do the handout thing. They see someone in need and help them one-to-one. But the Bible has structural solutions to protect the most marginalized in the community. So that's all I had to say about that. All right. Are we done then? Did we do it? Yeah, I guess we're done. I'm not going to have time to even start on Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013. That's going to have to be some other time. Sorry about that. (laughs) It's fine. Like, we're already here. Um, But anyway, before we go ahead and wrap things up, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put you on to called The Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. Features uh, in-depth interviews about religion and culture featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? Uh, You can find me preparing jokes for the coming week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can find us uh, for real on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can search for us on Facebook. And you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. Yeah. Also want to give a special thanks to uh, the folks behind the scenes helping us uh, helping us out with the podcast. Special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts. 
uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being big helps with the uh, social media content and the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Uh, these outlines are also including the Faithful Feminist episodes from the same week, so you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me outlines. You can find a link to these outlines in the show notes, as well as the drop-down menu on our website. Uh, same goes for the transcripts. Um, do we got any events coming up, Derek? Anything we got to put the people on to? Nope. Not that I know of. All right. Very good. Also, just remind you guys, keep bothering Derek about that course. Ah. Bother him all the live long day. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, if there's nothing else, thank you for joining us till we meet again next yes, week. Yes. Thank you so much for enduring to the end. <laughs> <laughs>